I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. I don't believe in a word like innocent for humans, um, generally speaking. But if we're talking about an ice cube and an ice cube tray, maybe I can believe in that, right? And so. I think there is something more uh, pared down and almost fable-like. I think that world illuminates the other world, which is our world. I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. Matilda Bernstein Sycamore is the author of three novels and two books of nonfiction, as well as the editor of anthologies like Nobody Passes, Rejecting the Rules of Gender and Conformity, Dangerous Families, Queer Writing on Surviving, and a forthcoming anthology titled Between Certain Death and a Possible Future, Queer Writing on Growing Up with the AIDS Crisis. Her most recently published book, called The Freezer Door, was a New York Times editor's choice and a finalist for the 2021 Gene Stein Book Award. I've seen it called a memoir, but that doesn't feel like quite a total descriptor to me. Um, the Freezer Door is a free associative chronicle full of aphorism and digression and argument and interspersed between these free associative meditations on desire, gentrification, connection and alienation, disability, sex, are these scenes of dialogue staged between an ice cube and an ice cube tray who are living together naturally in a freezer. 
they have conversations like this. Explain nihilism to me, says the ice cube. Everything melts, says the ice cube tray. Explain existentialism, says the ice cube. This isn't freedom, says the ice cube tray. Explain democracy, says the ice cube. This is democracy, says the ice cube tray. Explain communism, says the ice cube. We're in this together, says the ice cube tray. I was excited to get to talk to Matilda about this book and about queerness and activism, anthologies as a mode of intervention, and about a diagnosis that completely changed her writing process. Hope you enjoy. Um, So in 2000, um, I was living in New York and I needed to leave. It was kind of destroying my health. I felt trapped. Um, I felt like it was a careerist monoculture that would destroy me. And so I moved to Provincetown for the summer and um, to figure out what the hell I was doing. I planned that ahead. I also was in a really terrible, like, you know, uh, a landlord had broken into my apartment and stole everything. and, And then I stayed and like basically didn't pay rent for six months, you know, and I knew my time was up. So um, I uh, moved to Provincetown. And when I was there, you know, Provincetown, as you know, is a beach town at the end of Cape Cod. And so I'd moved from New York to this little beach town. I was there before the season started. And so I was doing a lot of exercise. I got a bike for the first time since I was a kid. I was biking everywhere. I would go jogging every morning. I would go to the beach. I would go to the gym. So I did all these things. And I started to get this pain in my wrists right where I held the handlebars. And um, so I just thought, you know, like we're always told, oh, you know, it's just your muscles getting stronger. It's something you're not used to doing. So I thought, okay, we'll just get better. And then by the end of the summer... I couldn't hold the handlebars and then I couldn't hold a jar. I couldn't open a door. I couldn't hold a knife when I was chopping vegetables um, because there was too much pain. Um, And so at first it started, you know, diagnosed as like repetitive strain injury. And then it became all over my body, um, fibromyalgia. And, And when that pain started or when it became debilitating, you know, I kind of panicked because writing for me at that point in my life, I had always written when I felt like I had something that I needed to get down or otherwise I was going to die. Right. So I'd write in kind of like a frantic rush and there was no way I could write like that because even, you know, typing for like more than two words, you know, I'd have like shooting pains in my arms. Um, and so you know, at first I was really scared because I thought, well, how am I going to continue writing? Writing is what I do in order to process the world, in order to um, articulate the way I see things, and in order to survive, really. You know, writing keeps me alive. And so I thought, after a little while, I thought, well, you know, I believe in experimentation. And let me see if I can use this limitation, which is horrible and, um, you know, depressing, but let me see if I can use it as a strength in my writing. And so I decided I would just write a few sentences a day with no intention of plot or structure or anything except what came through. And 
So I did that for like, I think a year or two. And then I was shocked to realize that I had more material, more writing than I'd ever had in my life. I think it was like four or 500 pages, maybe, maybe even, yeah, something like that. And that material ended up becoming my second novel, which was So Many Ways to Sleep Badly. I was already thinking non-linearly and, you know, I've never believed in conventional plot structure and I always wanted my work to resist that. But I think that experience of chronic pain, which has not gone away, has become more manageable, but it still is debilitating and has blended in with a lot of other chronic health problems, you know, especially chronic exhaustion and, um, you know, intestinal problems, sinus problems, hypersensitivity, you know, so it's, it's, it's an enmeshed, you know, sort of pattern of, of um, disability. Um, but I'm able to write, I have a process that works for me. And I, it really did come from that moment of um, overwhelm. How long did it take you to arrive at, at your new process? You know, I can't remember, to be honest. I mean, I think, I think it was, let me think for a second, because I was trying to get, you know, it was when I started to use voice activation software, which was completely useless at that time. <laughs> um, and I would, but I was in a panic. So I, I took, it took a year or two for it to, to be able to do anything that was useful at all at that time, um, which was like in 2001. Um, which is version three then now I think it's like 15. So it's a little mm -hmm. better, uh, mm -hmm. a lot better. <laughs> uh, but I think, I can't say for sure how long it took, um, but I think it wasn't a super long time, but, but it was, I didn't know it was going to do where it was going, you know, for at least a year or two. But I did start the process relatively well, I guess at first I would try to type and then I was like, oh, this isn't working. Or, um, so I, I can't say for sure, to be honest, but I would say over the course of that year or two is when I figured out that I had figured out something that would work. And ironically, you know, now I write way more than I ever wrote um, before the chronic pain, before fibromyalgia. So in that sense, in the long term it's helped my writing process, but it is still a limitation, you know, in the sense now I do use voice activation software to do the writing and people think, oh, does that help you be spontaneous? You know, because your writing is very voice driven and it's really the opposite. It actually is still a limitation because it, you can't speak like you would actually talk. So you have to, you're constant. Now it's, it, you know, it is my process, so I know how to do it, but it still would be way easier to just sit down and type. Um, but, but it has given me ways around and through and into text, not the software at all, but the process that I wouldn't otherwise have, you know, the process of figuring out a way to continue writing, um, you know, since it is my salve and my balm and my, um, I guess if I have something like hope, it is through writing. Yeah. Do you still do the a few sentences a day method? Are you still kind of working at that steady pace and that amount, that amount every day? Uh, I think now it's varied. So I do do more, but I would never, you know, like people talk about that, that conventional 
writing process idea where you like, you know, you sit down in the morning with your cup of Earl Grey <laughs> and then you, you know, you pet the cat and you sit there for like six hours in front of the computer and don't stop. <laughs> like if I'm in front of the computer for more than an, I mean, honestly, I shouldn't be in front of the computer for more than like 15 minutes to not be in pain. But like, but I sometimes do still get into that mode where I'm like, oh, oh, oh." so then I might be in front of the computer for an hour, but I, but I'm always leave coming and leaving back, you know, and, or I should say, let me rephrase that. I'm always leaving and then coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, but it's, but I think, but I guess what I say now, you know, if people say, was your advice for writing? I just think if you write something every day, and yes, I do, even if it is one sentence, because that sentence might be the one, you know, and it's, it is really the continuity that allows for the sparks to emerge and the themes and the threads and the through lines um, and the, the, um, the breaks and the impasses. Um, so, so I, I guess, yeah. So now I guess I write in a variety of ways. Mm. It's so interesting that you use the word spark, that, that, you know, that consistency is what allows the spark. Um, because I think a lot of people imagine that writing functions more often the way you described it working for you before this happened, which is that you have a feeling or a thought and you need to get it out in a rush and that the spark happens and then you sit down to write. But it sounds like what you're describing is that you sit down to write and that's what makes the spark possible. I think it goes both ways because sometimes I do, you know, now I do think in a very micro way. So I'm like, this is a great sentence. Got to put that down immediately. Mm -hmm. But, But sometimes I sit down and I'm like, like I'll wake up in the morning. Sometimes I have an entire essay in my head, every single piece. It's all there. I sit at the computer and it's gone. There's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. I have nothing. And so I have to work around that, you know, and, and that is the brain fog and the like fatigue side of everything. And so I, the way to work around that is I just have to put something down regardless. And sometimes it is a part of what I wanted. You know, I might have like a paragraph and then it just stops or I might have something that doesn't seem like it relates at all, but it actually becomes uh, foundational. So actually a great example of that is the freezer door. The conversation between the ice cube and the ice cube tray was initially something entirely separate. Like it wasn't, in, it wasn't part, well, I guess I should say the way I wrote that book is that I similarly, where I just had one document, I just put everything I was writing for, uh, this is really my process for a book now is where I just, I don't have an intention of form. I don't have an intention of what it is. I don't have an intention of what I want it to look like or feel like, or the structure. I want all that to happen through the writing process itself. And so that's, I think what you're asking about where the spark comes from. And so in the case of the freezer door, I just wrote and wrote. And of course, you know, themes would emerge and I would repeat them. Some of them are really small, like like the terrible outfits in the window of the yoga boutique. You know, I became obsessed with them. <laughs> so I would write those down, you know, and some of them were much larger, like, um, 
you know, the, the tyranny of the suburban imagination over urban life, you know, or the, the way that people in Seattle refuse to interact on the street, um, or, you know, and within that, that the, the landscape of gentrification and homogenization and assimilation and the hypocrisy of gay culture, the, um, and, um, yeah, and it also, of course, you know, chronic health issues and, um, desire and its failure, dancing. Um, so there were these things that would, you know, that I would sort of come back to over and over again. Here's what happened, actually, is that I was invited to be to do a reading series in Seattle called The Furnace. And the reading series was you just read one piece. It was just one reader. You had one piece to completion. You had an hour. Um, and it, But the theme was it had to be about Seattle. And I thought, oh, well, this is the writing app about Seattle that I've been doing for the last few years. So, And I knew which part I thought was the most polished. So I just pulled that out. Um, and that is what ended up becoming the beginning of the book. And that was when I realized this theme of um, going into spaces that I, all, that I know are corrupt in order to find what isn't, in order to figure out an embodied self in a world that doesn't want me to allow that in terms of gay culture, in terms of, you know, Seattle, in terms of this gentrified urban landscape, um, so that theme of going into these spaces that are already corrupt in order to find what isn't. But then the, the part about the ice cube and the ice cube tray, that was just some weird little experiment I was doing. Initially, it was just something I was playing around with on Twitter. And, and people started relating to it in an emotional way. And I was like, I didn't even think of it that way at first. And then I was like, oh, this is, oh, people are really engaging with that. And then I, I realized that that was part of this book. And of course, it eventually, I mean, that's the, that's the title of the book, right? So, <laughs> um, so that's when those two pieces came together um, that initially were not part of the same thing. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit more about how now you see those pieces with the ice cube and the ice cube tray sitting amidst these other themes and this other material that make up the bulk of the book, which has nothing to do with these these two sweet inanimate or animate inanimate characters? <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you for that question. So um, for me, the form of the book, basically, um, when the emotion can no longer hold, the text breaks. So the first page of the book is just one sentence, right? One problem with gentrification is that it always gets worse. And then you're just left there, right? All this white space. And then you turn the page and it says, um, but then I go into Hooters and it's a vintage clothing store. A friend of mine is trying on breasts. This is why I like dreaming. And that's so... Basically, so it starts, the landscape that the book takes place 
in is gentrification, right? So everything is determined by that. And, and then on the next page, we have, it's sort of flipped, right? There's this idea of a dream that could open up something else. And in the book, I'm working toward feeling, right? I'm writing toward feeling and I'm writing toward an embodied self and embodiment and desire don't just mean pleasure and connection and intimacy, even if those are the goals, right? That also means devastation and hopelessness and trauma and loss and loneliness and alienation. So it's all of that at once. And I think the end of the opening section of the book, I say um, something like, I don't understand why nothing heals. And it's in that, that moment where the text, it can't even hold anymore in terms of like a broken text, right? It has to go into another world. And the other world is inside this world, right? It is in a freezer and it is a conversation between an ice cube and an ice cube tray. And they're having a conversation that in some ways is similar to a conversation that's happening in the book and a conversation that we have, but they're in a different world. Their world is that freezer. Even though they think outside it because they watch TV, they've gone to art shows, they, um, they know about the same things we know about. They think about philosophy, but it's all, in some ways it's simplified, you know, and the emotion is almost, I guess, childish in a way, or I, and I would never say this about, I don't, I don't believe in a word like innocent for humans, um, generally speaking. But if we're talking about an ice cube and an ice cube chain, maybe I can believe in that, right? And so I think there is something more uh, pared down and almost fable-like. Um, and so I think that world illuminates the other world, which is our world. Um, and it's, all, it's more trapped in a way, um, but it is also more um, directly connected to a more, I guess, childlike kind of emotionality and also to a kind of trope of a relationship that, um, that we all get stuck in in certain ways, right? But in this case, there's really literally stuck. I mean, an ice cube, like how long can that last, right? And... <laughs> um, so, so they're playing out these issues of intimacy and um, uh, connection and, you know, all the same, you know, loneliness and um, desperation, the same issues, but in a, a, a more, um, I guess, molecular, <laughs> maybe uh, frozen or fluid way, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> Yeah, the the thing that I was noticing about the two of them is that they seemed to be occupying this space of a very contained, literally quite contained, sort of boxed in, uh, and and circumscribed and attached 
relationship where with with all of the confinement and frustration that that implies and all of the intimacy and closeness that that implies and it it felt like such a counterpoint to the rest of the book which is so much about or read to me like so much about seeking after connection and community and conversation and um you know I don't know about seeking after structures, but seeking after that kind of I and thou uh, relationship that the ice cube and the ice cube tray seem to have, um, while also being skeptical of that kind of connection and and constantly mired in its complications and its failures. And then we get to come see these, these two uh, like really doing it in their own way in their in their freezer. Yeah, I think, well, yeah, and I think also the questions, of course, of the book, you know, are sort of playing out in this more, um, this one-on-one way, because the book, in a way, is about public space, and it is about a communal possibility, um, or lack thereof, and the conversation between the ice cube and the ice cube tray you know, the world is outside of their world, right? That's something else. You know, you have to open the freezer door to get there. And so that's that quest, that central question about the, of the book in a way is when the ice cube and the ice cube or the ice cube asks, um, well, basically the question is, you know, what, what happens if we open that freezer door? And, um, and of course that, You know, in there. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, I remember that line because I really loved it. I think the ice cube asks, what's gambling? And the tray says, open the freezer door. Right. Exactly. What is it like to gamble? Right. What is it like to. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess that gave me such a laugh. Right. Is is what is it like? Like the gambling that we engage in every day, just going into the world, you know, a world that doesn't allow us to be ourselves or to express ourselves or certainly has not for me. And we go out there anyway with the hope that we might still find that moment of connection that changes everything. Right. And like, to me, that's the dream of the city the as a place where you find everything and everyone that you never imagined. And it's that engagement with public space. um, And possibility and impossibility in everyday experience, but there's a sort of clampdown that's happening in the book that is happening in our world um, of a world that doesn't allow that kind of um, spontaneity or uh, the sort of that wants to build walls or white picket fence around everything, right? And so, um, so in some ways, the ice cube and the ice cube tray are more inside that. And maybe more inside that even than that, right? Because it's funny because I, it's funny because sometimes people give you insight, like someone who, someone was writing about the freezer door from the point of view of, I think she's a scholar uh, on um, appliances. (laughs) And she's like, this is a metaphor for 50s normalcy. And I was like, well, I wasn't really thinking about the 50s, you know, uh, or, you know, like that, but it works in that sense, you know? And so I think, um, not sure where I was going with that exactly, but just 
that there is this the theme of confinement, um, which is both literal and metaphor, and it is internal and external. And there's always like in the book, I'm always pushing against these walls that are confining me um, with the hope that something will break through. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, yeah, whether whether you write embodiment or write toward embodiment now differently um, since since fibromyalgia. I'm not sure that I would have realized before fibromyalgia that I was writing toward embodiment. Um, I think, let me think about that. I think I, I mean, definitely the themes of connection and disconnection, of searching for a home, of desire and its failures. Um, those would have all been central um, of queerness, of struggle, of survival, of um, surviving trauma um, and building community in the ruins of the world around us. Those would all be central, but I don't know that I would have known that I was writing so specifically toward embodiment. Uh, I think it developed over time. So I think that's most clearly true in this book, in the freezer door. Um, yeah. And maybe it's built over time. I mean, one thing, one realization I had after semi-recently, well, way after I was done with the book, was, you know, this most successful embodiment in the book, I think, is the text itself, right? Because the text is also searching for its own embodiment. So there's this kind of elliptical structure where the sentences like twist around to... um you know, they go in one direction and then they turn around, right? And they the the form of the book also follows that kind of um, elliptical kind of pattern. And I think um, so much of the the search for connection and embodiment that I'm looking for in the book, it has a very ebb and flow, you know, um, structure to it. But I feel like the text itself is... Um, at least in my reading of it, but maybe, of course, I'm biased. <laughs> but I kind of feel like that's the thing I didn't realize, that that actually the most successful embodiment is that text itself. And uh, and within that is, the, is those breaks and is that flow and is, you know, it, it had to start with, um, you know, the, I didn't even call it a draft, but the first... I call it the material because it's too um, capacious. And it was like a thousand pages. Um, and, you know, as you know, the book now, it's like 260 pages, but some of those pages are one sentence. So it's way, way less text than a quarter of what it originally was. And I think in the editing process is where part of the embodiment comes from that in the text. Um, and um, whereas... Yeah, well, and I think, yeah, and, and that also that process of the writing and building this this really sprawling uh, mess in order to um, hone it down and, you know, pare it down to its essentials of emotion. Um, like, I think all of that, in some ways, is both a search for embodiment and 
a form of embodiment itself. Yeah. In what, can you tell me a little bit more about how you think of it as a form of embodiment itself? So I think that because of the, the gaps and the way it, you know, forces you by embodiment, I mean the experience of the reading, right? Uh, Mm. A text probably can't be embodied, you know, on its own, you know, it needs a body to inhabit it, right? And um, <clears throat> so I think I mean the experience of reading it. Um, well, my uh-huh. experience of writing it is one side, right? Um, but I also think, because it's been very interesting, you know, since the book came out, because, you know, I wrote it in what I considered the present. And then a year ago, that present changed dramatically. And so the book came out in November, the end of November, um, of 2020. And so I was like, as it was approaching, I was like, oh no, what are people even going to think of this? Are they just going to be like, this is preposterous. Like, you know, like, and people kept telling me that, that who had read it before, they're like, oh, this feels so relevant. I had no idea what they're talking about. And then it came out and both in terms of the reviews, in terms of individual readers, in terms of like my virtual readings, People were connecting on such a deep level. I think especially with themes of, well, really all of it, but the way I've come to understand it is the themes of alienation and, um, you know, an urban landscape that has, is foreclosing the possibilities that should exist, but do not anymore, or or maybe are more impossible uh, because of gentrification, because of, commodification because of technology um, and and that search for connection. So especially the alienation, search for connection, um, desire and its impossibility, which is kind of the frame that I think of the book as operating through. People were, you know, connecting in such deep ways. And I think that wouldn't have happened if the book was not in the form that it's in. Like it's in a broken form. And, the, and that's the search. It's searching for itself. I always want people to enter any book that I write on the terms of the writing itself and not on any other terms. And I feel like that has really happened, you know? And, um, and so that for me allows a kind of embodiment. But I do think there is something that, yeah, it is a kind of communal embodiment in a sense. Even if it is, isn't the search that I'm engaged in, in the book exactly. It is a different kind of communal experience. Oh, that's so beautiful because it is then, that is kind of a consummation of the some of the kinds of desire that are expressed in the book. Yeah, like that, that desire for a world in which we can all kind of feel like that moment, like just before... Um, we're about to make out, right? It's that possibility, you know? And and also they were all, you know, we exist together, right? That's the thing that just destroys me every time I leave the house. <laughs> like I'm going out there for connection and everyone's just like, cannot handle anything. Like, like I'm leaning against, like as I talk about in the book, I'm leaning against a tree and people are like, and that's become even worse during the pandemic in certain ways where, People are just like, why is that person leaning against a tree? And I'm like, well, shouldn't you just come up and say hi? I mean, like, 
But instead, they're like running away. Oh my God, they're leaning against a tree. The world has ended. Yeah, that like horror of connection that is so ubiquitous, while also loneliness is so ubiquitous. Yeah, exactly. And I think the two are so intertwined. You have um, an anthology coming out soon, next year, if I have it right. And you've worked on a lot of... Yeah, it comes out um, in October. Oh, this coming fall. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you've worked on a lot of anthologies over time. And that's a totally different kind of form and maybe like a polyvocal kind of embodiment. And I was wondering if you could tell me... Why you why you like working in anthology form? Why that feels like it's become such an important part of your writing life? Yeah, I think for me, an anthology is an intervention. So I have a, a question in my mind or a problem or something that I think isn't being represented. And then, like, I could write something about it, but I actually, what I want is more of a communal conversation. And so I kind of can use my skills you know, from doing direct action activism and my skills as an editor and a writer um, together to create something that my goal is to like shift a larger conversation and inspire, you know, more conversations, right? So for example, the book that's coming out in the fall, which is called Between Certain Death and a Possible Future, Queer Writing on Growing Up with the AIDS Crisis. So that came out it was actually from my, my most recent novel, Sketch to See, which came out in um, 2018. And that book takes place in 1995 in Boston. And the narrator is a 21-year-old queen um, who is coming of age in you know a city that's rapidly afraid of difference. And um, I didn't know until I started writing the book, or not even when I started, until maybe I was somewhat close to the ending, that I was like, oh, that there was that it was a generational novel about AIDS, um, mm-hmm. and but here I am writing about a twenty-one-year-old queen in a world, you know, of um, pageantry uh, that may or may not allow a possibility for transformation, you know, and but it's nineteen ninety-five, right? In nineteen ninety-five, you know, more people died of AIDS in this country than any other year. And we, thinking in 2021, can look back and think, oh, well, something was about to change, right? We were about to have drugs that would make HIV into a manageable condition for many or most or people who have access. But in 1995, no one could imagine that. If AIDS was certain death. And for the characters in the book, you know, who are the same age as me, you know, I was also 21 in 1995. Um, and like we grew up, um, and now speak, leaving that fictional narrative, but now into, um, you know, like I, like, you know, the first time I heard of a gay person, it was Rock Hudson dying of AIDS on the cover of the National Enquirer. Mm -hmm. AIDS and gay were the same thing. 
They were in, in, intertwined. There was nothing else. And, and so, so to me, like just having desire, you know, like as a faggot, as a queen and as a queer person in the world, desire was intertwined with death. They were inseparable. And so I think now when people talk about AIDS, they talk about two generations. And the one most commonly talked about is the generation who grew up and experienced sexual liberation in the 60s and 70s, and then watched all their friends die of a mysterious disease while the government did nothing to intervene, right? So that's like a crucial narrative. And that's the generation before the one I'm talking about. But the one I'm talking about is never talked about. Now people talk about a generation growing up now with, with um, you know, medication for HIV that can make it into a manageable condition and unable to imagine the loss of that first generation, right? But there's actually this generation in between. And so that's between certain death and a possible future. So we grew up um, with both of those experience, parts of both of those experiences. We never experienced sexual liberation. That wasn't on the table. We grew up with AIDS. It was like inside us, you know? And so our, we imagined the um, certain death of the generation before us. And we could never have imagined that we would live. And, and so the book in a way is like, I could write that story for myself, but I thought, well, I want all, all of these different perspectives that like shift the conversation and allow this generational perspective to come to the fore. And hopefully kind of, you know, in some ways it's a bridge between these generations that people, especially in queer worlds, they say, oh, well, people, how will they ever talk to one another? No one can understand. And it's like, well, there are people in between, you know, like that is the bridge, right? And so, and also sort of, you know, like thinking through the trauma that exists, you know, that is, has been internalized so that we can move through it and get somewhere else. How do you feel like, this work and maybe all your writing work um, sits in conversation with your direct action work? Well, I think in my life, there've been three things that have been central. And over time, they've shifted in terms of which are the most, um, the, which, which is most central shifts over time. And so I think, and those three things are activism, um, writing and relationships. And, um, and I think when I was first coming of age as a queer person, when I moved to San Francisco, when I was 19 in the early 90s, activism, direct action, that was the central thing for me. And through that, also relationships and like figuring out a way, you know, a queer way of existing in the world that challenged hypocrisy. And, um, and then writing was in the background. And I would say over time, as both the relationships that have meant the most to me and uh, uh, the activist worlds have let me down, writing has become more central. And um, so, and I would say, I would never, I don't think of my writing as activism. I think of it as the way that I can stay alive. And um, so far, 
it's a strategy that has worked. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so I'll keep going, right? And of course, it does reflect my experiences and it does reflect my politics and my... um, But I think in a lot of ways, I'm kind of... Over time, I've been more drawn in writing to sort of... uh, Well, that's not true. I think I've always... I've always... um, you know, I write toward the gaps, you know, towards the places mm. where feeling stops, you know, towards um, trauma and impossibility so that maybe I can get somewhere else. But I don't want to um, impose a kind of false narrative of, uh, you know, a kind of we have arrived kind of mentality, which and in some ways that is very, very connected to the way I think politically, because I think there is this kind of shiny, happy people version of, um, you know, the sweatshop produced rainbow flag mentality of, you know, community, you know, it means like, you know, gentrify a neighborhood and get rid of all the people of color and, you know, sex workers and, um, you know, elders and people with AIDS and, um, disabled people and, and then we've arrived, right? And so, you know, that's the sort of, that's the, the, the politic that probably undergirds everything, um, is that I have to challenge that hypocrisy. But I guess over time, I've more and more wanted to challenge also, maybe even more, the hypocrisy of the queer worlds that are allegedly trying to challenge that viciousness, right? The viciousness of both um, dominant straight, you know, violence, and also the viciousness of, you know, mainstream gay assimilation. But I also think there's the violence of a of queer worlds that are very self congratulatory, and but then also, you know, engage in the same kinds of like shaming and expulsion and, um abuse and um but but with a much more sophisticated rhetoric and i feel like over time it's those worlds that have failed me even more um because i don't believe in you know straight normalcy or gay normalcy but when it's the queer worlds that i believe in that like i guess in a way those the freezer door starts with this question of or it doesn't start immediately but uh, you know it, it's centered there's a lot of questions, but one of them, I think, is a question of how can I have an embodied self, right? And that I have found these queer worlds where my intellect is valued, my politics are valued, um, my emotions are valued, but my embodied, my body is not valued. Or I can be in gay worlds where the only thing that matters is my body and nothing else. And, and there is still this kind of like gender segregation, like queer worlds emerged, you know, to challenge the sort of racism, the body fascism, the misogyny, and the um, internalized and externalized homophobia and transphobia of gay worlds. Um, but they also have their own policing mechanisms that I think, you know, there's this question of like my body, you know, as someone who is male socialized and, you know, 
um, exists outside of that socialization, but I still have a certain body that is not valued, I think, in most queer worlds, which um, see the body that I have as the enemy. By definition, I have to prove that I belong. And so I guess my question is, in some ways, the lar- I'll, I'll, a larger question is, what would a world look like where we don't have to prove that we belong? You know, mm. not a world where we all belong, but more like a world where no one belongs, right? Like, because mm-hmm. there's always a kind of hierarchy when someone belongs and someone doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we started with you talking a little bit about this fibromyalgia diagnosis and that kind of transition in your life uh, in, within your own embodiment. Um, and now I'm listening to you talk about this problem of embodiment. Um, and after having written, you know, this book that really sort of wrestles with that question. And I guess I'm wondering if that, if you feel like you pushed somewhere new in the writing of the book, or if that problem feels still like one you're circling in the same way. Oh, that's such a good question. Well, I guess maybe that's what I mean by, I think the most successful embodiment in the book is the text itself. Mm. Like, um, you know, I don't want to give away, you know, I like, well, it's interesting. In writing the book, of course, I am writing toward, you know, my goal is to, um, well, it's that opening in the very beginning where I go to this bar and I haven't gone, I haven't existed in gay bars because I already know all of their limitations, right? I don't want to be in that, you know, like um, racist, misogynist, body fascist, semphobic, you know, mm-hmm. what's there for me? And I don't even drink, right? So, but I find myself there anyway. And everything I already knew existed is there. So there's the shade and there's the shame and there's the sadness, but also there's a sweetness. And, and that's when I realize that's what I need. And I can only get there. I can only get from this world of other fags, right? Is in a, in one in the, in that particular way. And, um, or I guess that that's what's missing, you know, cause when I say queer spaces, there are very, very few like male socialized, genderqueer, um, faggots or trans women or trans feminine spectrum people at all. It's, you know, in those worlds, especially in Seattle or especially in any, well, I'll just say Seattle for now because that's where the book takes place. Um, you know, and, and then you go to gay bar, which is all people who have been socialized the same way, but they're socialized into something horrible, right? <laughs> and so, so the book, I'm searching for that sweetness and it does happen and it doesn't. And then it does happen and it doesn't. And there is like that connection with the possibility in some ways is the deepest connection, but it all, it almost always ends up failing me. Um, and I'm definitely still there. Um, maybe I am, I think I was feeling more embodied and closer to the connection when I was writing the book than I do now. So that's why I think I say that 
the text is the most successful embodiment. That's where I've succeeded. You know, like that text could not have happened if I didn't go on this search. And if I wasn't present in all of that vulnerability and all of that loneliness and all of that searching and all of that, um, that quest, that questioning, that kind of circling around, that playfulness, that presence, that sadness, that, um, that's, but still searching, you know, still like um, going into the world with a kind of feeling that maybe someday and hopefully today, you know, I can exist in a world where my body can finally have a home. And maybe that world happens in moments and, and then it, maybe it's not there at all. And, but I think the home I've created is the text itself. And, um, I want the other, the other home too, (laughs) but I'm not there yet. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.